Welcome back to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, titled Preclinical Stage Alzheimer's Disease, Characterizing and Defining the Transition Between Normal and Pathological Cognitive Aging. Let's return now to presenter Dr. Richard Caselli from the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. Now, some might argue that, you know, there's a lot of frontal lobe, and, you know, okay, that looks like a lot of tests, but, you know, there's other things the frontal lobes are involved with. And so another test that was devised by some of my former mentors in Iowa City is called the Iowa Gambling Test. And the Iowa Gambling Test is supposed to sort of be an indication of, you know, reward-based learning. So people have to draw a card from one of four decks, and the decks are sort of weighted. They're not fair. Some of the decks, you get high reward, high punishment. Some low reward, low punishment. Have you done it with these people? I see a lot of people smiling here. (laughs) So you've all been volunteering for Dr. Rapchak's frontal lobe studies. Okay, well, anyway, to make a long story short, when we gave them the Iowa gambling task, not as a longitudinal study, we added this at the end, just trying to, in desperation, to see is there anything else going on, we found nothing. T-scores are all the same, the net Ross scores are all the same, even though it's not thought to be as legitimate a measure, even the total amount of money that they win or lose didn't differ between any of these people. So might there be an effect there that, you know, if we do it for another thousand people for 10 years that we'd find, yeah, it's possible, but it's certainly not anything all that great, and considering all the amyloid that's depositing in the frontal lobe. So finally, talking about one more thing, and that's Tom Forty. Tom Forty is in in strong linkage disequilibrium with APOE. And over the years of phylogeny, because of that linkage disequilibrium, there is a non-random association of the different alleles of each of these genes. So that an E4 allele from APOE is at least 80% of the time associated with a, quote, long variant of Tom Forty. If it's an APO3 gene, however, half of them are associated with a short variant and half are associated with a long variant. So E3 can go either way. In our APOE and ADC cohorts, we've had about 36 incident cases of MCI and Alzheimer's in whom we had DNA that we can do TOM40 testing on. We actually had a few more incident cases than that, but we didn't have DNA on all of them. And so out of these 36, most of them looked like MCI or, or typical Alzheimer's. We had four that were Alzheimer variants, like an apraxic variant and a phasic variant. We had two dementia Lewy bodies, which for those of you familiar with that condition, you know at least 75% of the time there's also Alzheimer's pathology there. So we're pretty confident these are all people who have Alzheimer's pathology in their brain. And what we found was that when we looked at the age of onset for the whole group, it was actually younger in the LL Tom 40 homozygotes, but you should object to that and say, but wait a minute, you know, E4 and L are are bound together, so all you're doing is rediscovering what you already knew. Here, we've got only E3-4s, and now we're separating out the LLs versus the SLs, and we are getting a difference, but there's only 11 people in this group. And that's the problem with the data right now. This is a small cohort. None of them are, are big cohorts yet. And when we looked at the E33s, we really didn't see much of a difference. The SLs were a little older than the LLs, but not statistically significantly different. But what we have now done as well is the same longitudinal modeling that we did for APOE. And what we're finding is that there do seem to be significant effects not only for APOE, 
but for Tom 40. But there doesn't seem to be an interaction between the two. There appears to be a difference in an early effect that's dominated by Tom 40 of a flattening of that learning curve versus a late effect that seems to be dominated by ApoE4. So we have further work that's going on right now to actually try to test the two halves sort of centered around age 60 to see if there is, in fact, something we can demonstrate independently in those two age groups. And number two, we want to clean up the lines a little bit more and see whether it still holds up or whether, you know, we lose the effect. So in summary, there is, in fact, presymptomatic neuropathological change, neuroimaging change, and neuropsychological changes that can be found in genetically predisposed individuals which define and characterize what I think we can call preclinical stage Alzheimer's disease. Preclinical stage Alzheimer's begins in ApoE4 carriers on average during our 50s with a clinical lag time just based on our own clinical experience of about 10 to 15 years. Despite preclinical frontal amyloid deposition, the earliest neuropsychological change reflects medial temporal dysfunction, which presumably is due to previously documented neurofibrillary tangle pathology. Tom 40 appears to independently influence AD risk and preclinical memory decline, so it does so differently than APOE, but it doesn't substitute for APOE is the message that I'm trying to get at here. And our next steps are we've reached a point where we want to start exploring some of the exceptions that we're seeing. So the APOE4 homozygotes who celebrated their 80th birthday and are not demented, or the E23s that shouldn't have gotten demented until they were 90 but did by the time they were 75. And so we want to look at their TOM40 uh, data. We want to look at APOE fragmentation. Folks at UCSF and Gladstone Institute are very interested in that aspect. Dr. Wang is somebody we're collaborating with. And then epigenetic changes. Epigenetics are thought to account for maybe 70% of cancer. Maybe that's uh, where the answer lies for Alzheimer's, too. And that's something we're doing in collaboration with Paul Coleman at Sun Health Research Institute. And I think I'm finally done chewing your ears off. And there's a lot of people, obviously, that you know, we work with, and the U of A at ASU and all around the state and beyond. And uh, really, this work is a reflection of everybody's contribution in that regard. So I will stop there, and I think we have a few minutes left for questions. So Alan Rose used to say that if we all lived long enough, we'd all get Alzheimer's, and nothing you showed me today suggests that that theory thesis has changed. Is that, is that fair? I mean, all these changes are going on as we get older, and if we all live long enough, we're all going to hit a point where we're symptomatic. To a first approximation, I agree. To make it a little more precise, but I think it, it, it's an important but, the way I look at it is this. If you imagine that the distribution of Alzheimer's the likelihood of getting Alzheimer's and actually getting it, for reality to actually follow what should have happened, follows a bell curve. What do I mean by that? There are people that we see under age 60, no family history, they're not E4 carriers, no reason they should get Alzheimer's, and yet they do. They're exceptions. Then there are these people who, you know, are over 90, they should all be getting Alzheimer's at some point, and somehow don't. And they're exceptions. So, can we devise some sort of biological model that explains both of those things? I don't know if we can. One thought I've had in that regard has to do more with epigenetics. So if you have sort of a set of things that normally would give you Alzheimer's, as long as all the other stuff that normally happens with aging happens, then you fall into the middle of that bell curve. On the other hand, if by some meteor strike you hit, have something hit something which doesn't normally occur, that triggers another cascade of events, bang, you get Alzheimer's even though, you know, you shouldn't have. Or you just happen to have some umbrella over that, you know, 
promoter region or something, that it just, despite being that old, it just keeps missing it. That, lo and behold, you know, you don't get it. These are infrequent events. I mean, we don't see that many people under age 60 with Alzheimer's, but we see a few. And we don't see that many people over age 90 who are just totally fine, although we do see a few. So that's a theory, and it's something which I'm, I'm interested in looking at further from our exceptions. There's a striking disconnect between the pattern of PIV distribution and pathology. And, well, not anatomic, but and function, right? In other words, there's, there's all this deposition in the frontal lobe, but as hard as you look, there's very minimal changes. The supposition has been somehow that amyloid is causative of the brain dysfunction. But in light of that disconnect, does that question that piece of dogma? Could it be that actually this amyloid deposition is protected in some way? And what you're seeing is an epic phenomenon. The reason the frontal lobe is spared is because of early PIB finding. And there's really something else that's the cause, and the PIB aggregation is protective, which is in the frontal lobe, which is why the frontal lobes are spared. So if you look at it backwards, you know, something like in what we used to think that Lewy bodies were, were the, uh, you know, the cause, but it turns out that they're really a marker in the cells that have Lewy bodies may be the ones that are protected. But is there any evidence for reversing the dogma? I'd like to think that that's one of the things that's going to contribute. I think the strongest evidence in support of what you're saying right now are the negative therapeutic trials especially the vaccine trial, which showed some amyloid clearing in the brain, and yet the dementia just marched on. I, I agree with you. Now, that's a very political thing, although what I'm finding is that more and more people can say it and not get beat up. I was at UCSF last week, and, you know, at UCSF, Robert Molly, the guy sort of discovered the APOE molecule, believe me, they think amyloid is a hack. You know, they think it's all about APOE. On the other hand, you know, you go to Harvard, you know, in, into Dennis Selko's arena, and, you know, you better be prepared to defend yourself if you espouse that heresy. You know, I think we're in a transitional stage. I think that's healthy. I think we got away with a bold last line of that frontal lobe paper, which was maybe it's time to rethink amyloid's exact role in the brain. But that's about as, as bold. We, we had one reviewer sort of criticizing us for knocking it, and one reviewer criticizing us for not being stronger in our knocking of it. Maybe what we're seeing is the sign of a battle being fought and it's trying to hold up. It's exactly what you're, what you're saying. Right. That the frontal lobes somehow are fighting a standing battle and they're holding ground. And what we're seeing is it's like flying over a battle zone at night and seeing everything light up. You don't know exactly who's fighting who, but you know there's an awful lot of gunfire and explosions. Right? And it continues. So maybe they're at an impasse, whereas in other zones, you know, once the bad stuff gets in there, it just rolls right over. Actually, there were papers from one of my colleagues in Rochester a few years ago, Keith Josephs, who actually looked at amyloid levels in tauopathy patients based upon their E4 status, which, shame on me, I hadn't remembered. I went through some of our Sun Health brain bank data, and it looks like people with PSP and other things that would be called tauopathies still have that same... E4 mismatch in terms of amyloid. So as best as I can tell, I don't think that's it, even though I thought it was an interesting idea. You've been listening to a session of Grand Rounds from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.
Hi, I'm ReachMD host Mimi Secor, inviting you to visit our online audio library at ReachMD.com, where you can access thousands of on-demand podcasts. Here is a part of one of our interviews. Can you explain what is unique about practicing as a nurse practitioner in Arizona? Well, first I want to say that it's different here as opposed to most areas of the country because we are very independent here. We have the ability to open practices without physician supervision. We can do solo practices without any supervision at all, as a matter of fact. We can also get admitting privileges from acute and subacute facilities that allow that within their bylaws. We can write all the prescriptions that a physician can with the exception of class 1 narcotics. And all of these things are quite unique to Arizona and a couple of other very rural states in the country. In addition, this is a rural area with very limited resources, so everything we do here is very challenging. So all those things make us real unique here in Arizona. Where exactly are you located? In I know in Sierra Vista, Arizona, but where is that? Correct. We are about 75 miles south of Tucson in the middle of Cochise County, which is very rural entirely. And why did you want to start an independent nurse practitioner practice, Kirsten? Well, I was a little frustrated, to be honest with you, in the other practices in which I worked. I was very limited by the business policies of those practices and by the physician preferences in those practices. And I really wanted to do things where I could think outside the box when I needed to. I wanted to be able to provide care for indigent patients. And I was restricted from doing some of those things uh, that I felt would benefit people. I also want to hear more of this Partners in Practice interview, please visit us online at ReachMD.com, which features thousands of on-demand podcasts from the ReachMD Library. Thank you for listening.